0: This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can access new episodes every Thursday or subscribe to get automatic updates to your podcast feed. Today we're returning to a monument that we touched on in episode 30 when we visited Apsley House in London. We're just across the road from Apsley House. If we turn to one side, we can see it. So Apsley House and Wellington Arch are now very much related, but that wasn't always the case. That was Josephine Oxley from Apsley House, the former home of the Duke of Wellington, describing the nearby Wellington Arch. Wellington became a national hero in 1815, after the defeat of the French Emperor Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo. But even though Wellington Arch is so named today, its original concept and location were quite different. In fact, this seemingly solid structure has actually seen a lot of change in 200 years. And joining us now to explain the surprising history of the Wellington Arch is senior properties historian Dr Stephen Brindle. Hello. Stephen, first of all, could you describe the arch and its location today?
1: The arch is at a focal point in the west end of London at the Hyde Park Corner roundabout and it stands aligned with Constitution Hill, the wide avenue which leads down from Hyde Park Corner towards Buckingham Palace. And just beyond it to the east
0: is Piccadilly. Obviously this wasn't always the original location so can you tell us about where that was? It was pretty close by Charles, still
1: on Piccadilly facing across the road to what's called the Hyde Park screen. That's the impressive classical screen next to Apsley House. It's moved about 200 feet.
0: Okay, and the Hyde Park screen is, can you describe that for people who sort of need to visualise it in their head? I suppose it kind of looks like a a really long portico. uh...
1: Like a long portico of classical columns with an arch in the middle, and it forms a grand gateway to Hyde Park from Hyde Park Corner. Originally, the arch stood opposite it and they formed a composition together.
0: So that would have been quite nice. You could have walked through or promenaded through or on a horse or something like that.
1: But you'd have had to contend with the traffic on the main road in between. And that was kind of always an issue, as we will see.
0: Yes, indeed. (laughs) OK, so why was Wellington Arch built in its original position?
1: Well, there's quite a bit of prehistory here, really, Charles. The place is effectively the entrance to the West End. It's where the road from Kensington meets Piccadilly. It turns into Piccadilly and there's Constitution Hill goes down on the right and Park Lane goes up on the left. And back in the 18th century, when Mayfair was spreading, it was stopped by the extent of the Royal Parks, by Green Park and Hyde Park. And so the developers couldn't build any further. And so... There was, as you approached London from Kensington, you passed Hyde Park and then there was Green Park on the right and you came to a turnpike gate where you had to pay your tolls and that effectively formed the entrance to London. But in the 18th century, quite a lot of people began to think, well, this isn't really a very impressive entrance because in the culture of the day, in lots of people's minds, there was this vague idea that cities ought to have grand gateways But the thing was that London, the original city of London, of course, was some way to the east, and its medieval gateways, they'd all disappeared except for Temple Bar. And so London, sprawling out to the westwards, didn't really have a grand entrance at all. And there was this feeling that great cities need grand entrances. And so people started to promote ideas for a grand western entrance to London at this point, at what we now call Hyde Park Corner.
0: And so they changed the orientation of the arch, I gather. Is that right? Well, yeah, what
1: we have now looks nothing like what people were originally thinking of. I mean, the architect Robert Adam produced a number of designs and then in the 1770s and then in the about between about eighteen fifteen and eighteen twenty-five, the architect Sir John Soane produced designs. And what they had in common was they envisaged a triumphal arch actually spanning the road with a subsidiary archway. To the parks on either side, one into Green Park on the right and one into Hyde Park on the left. So there were these ideas in the air that London deserved the Grand Gateway, and this was the right place for it. And after the Battle of Waterloo, there was also this feeling in the air that London ought to have a victory arch. People thought it ironic that London didn't have a triumphal arch at all, Paris had the Arc de Triomphe, But it was Britain that had actually won the Battles of Trafalgar and Waterloo. And so there was added into the mix this idea that Britain needed a triumphal arch somewhere. And so people, including Soane, started to promote ideas for a triumphal arch at Hyde Park Corner. But that would have involved the government stumping up, which they weren't about to do.
0: I see. So in a way, the idea of having a gateway, a turnpike, a toll entrance, a grand entrance to the city from the west side, was all sort of mixed up into this idea of, oh, we've also just had a victory in, in a military conflict over Europe's worst aggressor in recent times. So let's have a triumphal arch that combines all those ideas as well.
1: Uh, there was that idea too. And at this point, I think we have to pause to consider the other triumphal archway we have, and that's the marble arch because this comes in an odd sort of way into the story. In 1825, George IV began the project to turn Buckingham House into Buckingham Palace. And he thought, I know, we will have our triumphal arch in front of the palace and it will be the memorial to our victories. And so John Nash designed this arch, the marble arch, to go in front of Buckingham Palace, and it would have sculpture representing the Battle of Waterloo on one side and the Battle of Trafalgar on the other. And around the same time, the scheme for what became the Wellington Arch took off.
0: I see. So this idea of Marble Arch, though, that's obviously quite a distance from Buckingham Palace, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it was kind of like this, Child, Hyde Park Corner is at the top of Constitution Hill. That was then one of the main approaches to Buckingham Palace. And so whereas previously there had been this idea that London ought to have a Grand triumphal Arch there, there were obvious objections to it because it would present a traffic bottleneck. And so what we got instead was a scheme for two gateways into the parks. The central triumphal Arch disappeared, but the two park entrances actually got built. And that's what was built in 1825-6. to The Royal Parks, which included Hyde Park, needed, well, policing, really, according to early 19th century standards of propriety and law and order, because they were haunts of what would now I think probably be called antisocial activity of all kinds. And so in 1824-5, the Office of Woods and Forests, which managed them, built railings all around Green Park and Hyde Park. And obviously, if you've got railings, you've got to have gates. So they commissioned their architect, a young man called Decimus Burton in his 20s, to design two park entrances at Hyde Park Corner. There'd be one into Hyde Park Corner on the left as you approach London, and one into Green Park on the right. And Burton, who's a very capable designer, designed what we now call the Hyde Park Screen on the left, and on the right, leading to Constitution Hill and Green Park, he designed an arch which was similar in scale to it. And at this point, The project got mixed up with the Buckingham Palace project because Buckingham Palace down the hill being turned into the new royal palace. And Burton's scheme ended up before the cabinet, that is before Lord Liverpool's government. And in 1825, they thought, well, we're building a new palace. The Green Park Arch will form a sort of outer gateway to it. And the cabinet said, we think that the Green Park Arch should be of an altogether grander scale and character to be more complementary to His Majesty the King and form an effective entrance to Buckingham Palace, an outer entrance. So as you approach from the west, you'd go through an arch at Hyde Park Corner, you'd go down Constitution Hill, then you'd go through the marble arch and you'd arrive at Buckingham Palace. And so you'd have gone through two triumphal arches, which were no longer going to lead to London, but they would form outer and inner entrances to the palace. So that was in a vague kind of way, the idea which emerged, not really planned by any one person, but it emerged in meetings in 1825.
0: Right. And just so that I've got this straight, and hopefully other people who don't know London particularly well have as well, the current Marble Arch is in a different location, is that right?
1: Yeah, I think at this point we'd probably better complete the story of the Marble Arch, because that is, well, Honestly, it could be another podcast, really, and perhaps should be. The Marble Arch was faced with white Carrara marble from Italy at great expense, and the sculpture that was prepared for it was all made. But Buckingham Palace got caught up in a huge political furore because it went so far over budget. And in 1828, the architect John Nash was hauled before a House of Commons committee, and they went to his accounts, and they stopped the project, and the marble arch was left unfinished as part of the compromise deal under which the government agreed to fund the completion of Buckingham Palace. And so all the sculpture which was meant to go on Buckingham Palace was left off because the intended top stage of it wasn't built. And some of the sculpture went on the palace, and some of it went on the National Gallery, and the statue of George IV, which was meant to go on top, Went to Traugher Square, and the arch was finished off without its intended top story, and so the memorial function wasn't really there. And then in the 1840s, Queen Victoria had the east wing of Buckingham Palace added, closing the courtyard, and that was only about 40 feet from the marble arch, which was thus much too close to the palace. And so the arch was dismantled, and it spent a couple of years in lots of bits and it was rebuilt as another entrance to Hyde Park at what we now call Marble Arch in 1851 too. So Marble Arch, which was meant to be our Arc de Triomphe, was finished off without any of its commemorative sculpture because it got caught up in the enormous political football come crisis that was Buckingham Palace. It was then dismantled and rebuilt at the other corner of Hyde Park, by which time most people had forgotten that he was ever meant to be London's triumphal Arch at all. And so Marble Arch ended up being marooned on a traffic island at one corner of Hyde Park, which is more or less the fate which awaits our other arch, the Wellington Arch. So there is, um, so there's in a way, the story of two arches, but that's what happened to the Marble Arch.
0: Right. That's really interesting. And of course, the Marble Arch where it is currently is, I think, kind of just at the end of the western end of Oxford Street. Is that right? Yeah, that's
1: right. It originally, it did actually lead into Hyde Park, but then in the 1960s, the traffic engineers took over and it ended up being on a big roundabout, as all Londoners will know. And that, in a way, it was the fate which ultimately befell Wellington Arch, but we'll, we'll get there eventually.
0: So, yes, I just want to tie up this idea of the Hyde Park screen, the Marble Arch and the Wellington Arch. So I think we've all got a good sense now of how they started off as a certain thing and then they ended up as something else. I think that's a really interesting part of the story. But were they all meant to work together in some sort of coherent way or did it all just become a bit of a civil engineering mess?
1: Um, yes, they were certainly meant to work together. The idea was that for travellers approaching London from Kensington from the west, you would come gently up the hill towards Mayfair. On the left, there would be an impressive, beautiful Ionic screen leading into Hyde Park. On the right, there would be a taller Corinthian triumphal arch, then called the Green Park Arch, which led into Green Park and actually to the street called Road called Constitution Hill where you could process formally or informally down the hill to Buckingham Palace, and you would turn right into the palace forecourt and go through the marble arch, which was also conceived as the triumphal arch modelled on the Arch of Constantine in Rome, and arrive at the King's Palace. But it didn't quite turn out like this, because as I say, Buckingham Palace turned into a massive political crisis because it went so far over budget. And The Green Park Arch got caught up in this too. Decimus Burton had been required by Lord Liverpool's government to produce a new design for an arch, and he did. A very fine design it was too, for a single arch and Corinthian columns. And it was meant to have figures of guardsmen, and there was meant to be a quadriga—that that is a four-horse chariot on top, and it would fairly clearly be a sort of a, a victory arch. But as Buckingham Palace turned into a political crisis, So there were various knock-on consequences. And one of them was that Burton's budget was cut in 1828. Now, he'd left various sections of the arch, what's called bossed for carving. That is, areas of the threes, areas to either side of it were slightly raised. And the idea was you'd get sculptors to come along and carve the military trophies and the, the threes in situ. But that never happened and the figures of Guardsmen and the Quadriga, and they never appeared either. So both the Marble Arch and the Green Park Arch were finished off without any of their intended sculptural ornament, or with very little of it, which would have given them a clearly commemorative character. So Burton designed this very handsome arch, which was structurally complete, but it too didn't receive its intended sculptural
0: ornament. So, lots of arches, are not quite following through on the specification? Indeed not.
1: A French visitor would, uh, would laugh long and hard, I think, at the comparison with their own Arc de Triomphe. But there it is, they were meant to be our victory arches, but they succumbed to the Buckingham Palace crisis and to budget cuts. In a way, it was all rather British. And so, the Green Park arch was finished, handsome object, very little sculptural ornament, Its commemorative quality or character just didn't really happen, but it was finished and it was stood there in 1828 and it was called the Green Park Arch and everyone thought it looked very handsome.
0: Okay, so this brings us back now to where we started really, which was the Wellington Arch, and this is the reason for the podcast obviously. It's very much linked with the Duke of Wellington's victory over Napoleon in the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, but what was its original name? It was called
1: the Green Park Arch because it led into Green Park. And um, it didn't really have any name other than that, initially.
0: And when did Wellington Arch become this memorial to Wellington's victory over Napoleon?
1: Well, Waterloo happened in 1815. The Green Park Arch and the Marble Arch were built in about 1825 to 1828. And the whole Wellington Memorial aspect is something which happened later in the 1830s. And this is partly because the Duke was a national hero, and it was widely felt that he deserved a national memorial in the same way that Nelson eventually got Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square. But there was also the point that the Duke actually lived there at Hyde Park Corner, which is where his residence, actually House, was. So in about 1833, a Wellington Memorial Committee was formed, which was huge. There were about 80 people on it. And they thought about possible locations for arches for a while, and some years passed without anything really happening. But as is often the way with committees that are much too large, they get steered and taken over by cliques. And in this case, the clique was controlled by the 5th Duke of Rutland and a Conservative MP called Colonel Frederick Drench. And they had a pet sculptor who was called Matthew Coates Wyatt. And they thought that the best thing to do would be to adopt the Green Park Arch because it was just diagonally opposite the Duke of Wellington's house, Apsley House. They thought, we've already got a triumphal arch there, so why don't we put an enormous statue of the Duke on top of it? And they got Matthew Coates to produce design for a gigantic equestrian statue of Wellington, which they proposed to put on top of the Green Park Arch and turn it into the Wellington Arch. But the problem with this idea was that although they obviously thought this looked wonderful, Matthew Coates Wyatt's equestrian statue was meant to be the largest equestrian statue in the world. It would weigh 40 tons and be 28 feet high. And the problem was that it was really pretty disproportionate to the actual arch it was standing on. I mean, think of 19th century mantle clocks which have sculpture on top of them. It was, well, these things were often a matter of taste, but a great many people thought it looked ridiculous. Too big for the arch. Now, the Duke of Rutland, who was a canny political operator, sprang this idea on a poorly attended meeting of the Wellington Memorial Committee and got it through. And then he went to the Prime Minister, who was then Lord Melbourne, and said, we've had this fantastic idea and the Duke is ever so keen because he'd be just opposite his house. What do you say? And in a a weak moment, Lord Melbourne agreed. So when news of this hit the press, there was something of a furore because people looked at the design and said, this looks absurd. But the Duke of Rutland and his colleagues refused to back down. There was a huge row in the Memorial Committee, and there was a row in Parliament, but the Prime Minister had already said yes, and the Duke of Wellington had said said he liked the idea, so it went ahead. Now the statue was so enormous that it took Matthew Coateswatt about five or six years to make it in a specially constructed foundry, but eventually in 1846 it was ready, and this gigantic statue, which I believe was the certainly the largest equestrian statue which had ever been made to date, I'm not sure who did still, was very slowly dragged on a special, huge, special sort of truck through London and raised on a gigantic scaffolding and put in place on top of the Green Park Arch. And once everyone could actually see it, there was another enormous row with people writing the papers saying this is making us a national laughing stock and it looks absurd and all that sort of thing. While the Wellington Memorial Committee of course, said, um, we think this is a holy fishing monument to our national hero. And um, eventually, the government, which by this stage was headed by Sir Robert Peel, in agonies of embarrassment, said, we are not enabled to think the effect is successful. And they asked the Wellington Committee to take it down again, because it had been put up kind of on trial. At this point, The Duke of Wellington himself intervened and he said that as his equestrian statue had been put up there, he would regard its being taken down again such an obvious mark of his sovereign's disfavour that he would feel obliged to resign all his public commissions, which started, bear in mind, with Commander-in-Chief of the Army and proceeded via Lord Warden of St Ports to Lord knows what else besides, And at this point, the government caved in and said, oh, God, (laughs) all right, it can stay. And so the Wellington statue stayed on top of the, what had now become the Wellington Arch, despite a widespread feeling that it looked either a bit odd or not quite right or absolutely absurd. But of course, the Wellington Memorial Committee all thought it looked wonderful, and the Duke of Wellington himself seems to have been pleased. So there it was, and there it stayed. Uh, and Londoners would point it out as uh, this latest national fiasco and total humiliation in this rather British kind of way. And so that's how the Green Park Arch became the Wellington Arch, but not in circumstances which anyone would really welcome.
0: And it took years, because uh, you mentioned 1846 there, and that wasn't even before they started thinking about moving it down. So it's 31 years after the Battle of Waterloo. Yeah, it had taken a long time to do. Well, Nelson's column was
1: only finished in the early 1840s, I think, Charles. I mean, these things do often take a long time. So, yeah, it had taken 30 years to erect a national memorial to the Duke of Wellington. But when it was put up, it had been foisted on the memorial committee and the nation by this sort of small clique of politically adept individuals headed by the 5th Duke of Rutland, who seems to have been a... Uh, a, a Duke of a, a particularly confident and overbearing description. And once he was up and the Duke of Wellington said, if it comes down, I'll have to resign all my commissions, then he had to
0: stay there. And with the Duke of Wellington's statue on his horse at this point in history, was, was it on the arch in the way that we see the arch today? Was the arch in that same orientation?
1: No, no, the arch was in its original position directly opposite the Hyde Park screen and thus diagonally opposite to the Duke's house, Apsley House, so the Duke would have seen it close quarters from his windows, probably from his bedroom.
0: Okay. And of course, now, were he alive today, he would see a much smaller statue of him on his horse, but it would be slightly obscured by a tree, I believe. That is correct. But there is a, there is a next stage of the story to get through first. Indeed. Okay, so tell us what happens next to the very large statue which stays on top of the arch in its original position.
1: Well, as so often in London, this comes down to traffic and highway engineering, I'm afraid. As volumes of traffic pouring through London just grew and grew, and then Victoria Station opened, which is away to the south down Grosvenor Place, and that introduced a new pattern of north-south traffic, trying to get across the traffic on Kensington Road and Piccadilly going east and west. And this area, Hyde Park Corner, became a notorious traffic bottleneck. And in 1880, an incoming Liberal government thought, well, we've got to do something about this. And we've got to widen the road and redesign the junctions between Grosvenor Place and Hyde Park Corner and then Park Lane going north to ease the traffic. But the Wellington Arch is in the way. And so in 1882-3, the arch was dismantled and the giant statue came down. And their idea was that they would rebuild the Wellington Arch at the top of Constitution Hill and actually aligned with it. So it's about 200 feet from its original location, but on a different alignment facing down Constitution Hill. Well, at least it would make sense in relation to that rather grand avenue, but it would no longer be in a clear architectural relationship to the Hyde Park Screen. It would be sort of a way a bit off to the right and angled in a different direction. But at any rate, that's what it did. It was all about the traffic. And so the giant Wellington statue came down. The government thought, what are we going to do about this terrible statue, which no one seemed to like? And they proposed that they would melt it down and they would make a more reasonably sized statue of the Duke instead but at this point a lot of army officers objected because a great many army officers had subscribed to the original memorial and they said you can't do that and so eventually the giant statue was taken i think it must have been cut into pieces and taken uh, to aldershot and it was re-erected on a big pedestal on a little hill near the garrison church in aldershot and there it remains so that's what happened to the giant statue and it stands on its own this little hill where it looks perfectly fine, because it isn't really sort of competing with its setting in the same kind of way. And the government very sensibly commissioned a new statue of the Duke from a sculptor called Sir Joseph Boehm, which is a very fine piece of work indeed. And that stands directly opposite Apsley House on what's now the High Park on Traffic Island. And that was made to represent London's Wellington Memorial, but although it's a lot bigger than life-size, it's still nothing like as big as the giant statue. And so quite a lot of people don't really notice it. This is partly because it's partly obscured by plane trees. In fact, for many years, it looked, in oblique views, it looked as if the horse was grazing on the plane trees because they, they came out quite close to it. So there is still a Wellington statue at Hyde Park Corner, and it's fine work of art, a much better work of art, I'd say, than the original giant statue. But a lot of people don't really notice it there. Now, so the arch itself had been moved and reconstructed facing down Constitution Hill. But it had lost the statue, which actually made it the Wellington Arch. But it kept the name. And instead, it acquired some functions in the process. And eventually, the arch housed um, a parkkeeper's lodge and a police station. So the arch has moved and it's lost the giant statue.
0: Yes. And I think it's worth saying as well that while all this is going on, the Duke of Wellington has died. In 1852, that's right. They didn't have to worry about the Duke's opinion anymore.
1: And so the giant statue went to Aldershot. A new statue is commissioned for Hyde Park Corner and the archers re-erected at the top of Constitution Hill.
0: Yes. And another interesting fact about the Duke of Wellington's death, he died at Walmer Castle in Deal in Kent, which we've been to on the podcast before because it is another English heritage property. So today, the horizontal surface of the arch is finished with another statue. What does that look
1: like? That is called a quadriga, which means a chariot drawn by four horses. And it's a composition representing a chariot driven by a boy charioteer, who you can only just see, actually, with four wildly rearing horses, and an angel is descending from the heavens onto the chariot. It represents the angel of peace descending on and halting the quadriga of war, although that might not be at once apparent to most people, but but that's its formal title, the angel of peace descends on the quadriga of war, and it's by a man called Adrian Jones. Now, Jones was a retired veterinary captain in the army of longstanding, and he was a brilliant amateur artist, sculptor. And when he retired, he became a professional artist, in particular a sculptor specialising in horses. And he longed to create a great monument. And in 1891, Jones had this idea of a great quadriga, but a quadriga which had the figure of an angel descending on it, And he made a plaster group, which he actually entitled Triumph, which was exhibited at the Royal Academy in 1891. And the then Prince of Wales is said to have been to the Royal Academy and seen Captain Jones's sculpture and said that would be just the thing to put on top of the Wellington Arch. And Jones obviously was delighted by this sign of royal approval and said, I would love to do such a thing but the Prince of Wales wasn't about to find the money and the government certainly wasn't either. So a long while passed, and eventually the Prince of Wales became King Edward VII, but he didn't quite forget the idea. It sort of must have come up in conversation every time he drove past it. And eventually Edward VII persuaded one of his rich buddies, who was a banker called Sir Herbert Stern, to put up the money. And Sir Herbert put up 20,000 pounds, so that Adrian Jones could make Quadriga, and Herbert Stern became Viscount Mitchell of Hellingley as part of the deal. So, Sir Herbert becomes Lord Mitchellum. Adrian Jones gets the budget, gets £20,000, though he later claimed this was a wholly inadequate sum, and he set to work making his Quadriga, which absolutely a gigantic thing to do, in his studio in Chelsea. And Edward VII was very interested and came and visited several times and is supposed to have enjoyed playing with the clay in the clay tubs while he was watching Jones at work. And between 1908 and 1911, Jones made these, first you make these, the giant clay models, and then you make plaster casts from around them. And then you make a plaster, which was taken to the Thames Ditton foundry and the Thames Dixon Foundry cast it in bronze, in lots of pieces, and eventually, in 1912, the quadriga was erected on top of the Wellington Arch. That's nearly 100 years after... After Waterloo. So the quadriga, which you might say gave the arch something of, uh, of a commemorative quality, something like a victory arch, was eventually put up in 1912. But the government hadn't really supported the scheme, they'd just given permission for the arch to be used for the purpose, and they'd spent a bit of money strengthening the roof for it to take the, the quadriga. And so there was no opening ceremony. Jones felt very miffed, he said in his memoirs. Edward VII had died. King George V and Queen Mary drove up to have a look, and he was presented to them, and that was it. And so the quadriga eventually got put on top of the arch. And a couple of other things had happened in the meantime had been a great scheme to re-landscape the area around Buckingham Palace called the Victoria Memorial Scheme. This included the actual memorial, which is that wonderful thing in front of the palace, but it also included redesigning the Mall and building Admiralty Arch and various pieces of sort of commemorative sculpture and gateways. And because the Wellington Arch now formed one of the entrances to this ceremonial landscape around Buckingham Palace, it was fitted with gateways to either side, so it was rather more obviously part of this ceremonial landscape and an outer entrance to Buckingham Palace. And around this time, the Southern Pier became park-heated entrance, and the Northern Pier became a police station. I'm not quite sure when that happened. And so, at last, the arch had, it had an axial relationship to Constitution Hill. It had a magnificent piece of sculpture on top. It had flanking gates to either side. And you might say that it all made sense as part of the ceremonial landscape around Buckingham Palace, although it no longer had a coherent juxtaposition with the Hyde Park screen. But you might say that that um, didn't matter because it formed a coherent part of of the ceremonial landscape around the palace.
0: What about the um, situation that it's in now, which is on this essentially a traffic island, as with the mob
1: it all comes back to the traffic, really. As so often, Park Lane in the nineteenth century, in the early twentieth century, was quite a quiet, very smart street going up the western edge of Mayfair and between Mayfair and Hyde Park, and it was lined on its eastern side with very grand houses. But as London's traffic levels grew, more and more traffic used Park Lane. And one by one, the Grand Palaces disappeared, and things like the Dorchester Hotel and the House Hotel were built there instead. And it got busier and busier. And there were traffic bottlenecks at both ends, at the Oxford Street end and at the Hyde Park corner end. And so in the early 1960s, the Park Lane widening scheme was carried out. And this turned Park Lane into sort of urban motorway, which we know today. And at the north end, a huge new roundabout, or I think we might call it a gyratory, was made, which puts the Marble Arch on an island. And at the south end, another gyratory was made, which effectively put the Wellington Arch on an island. So in the process, the arch was cut off from Constitution Hill, and the Grand Gates to either side were demolished. And the southern pier of the arch, what had been the park keepers' residence, was gutted to make a ventilation shaft for the Hyde Park Corner underpass. Because as you may know, the main road as you're approaching Piccadilly from Kensington, the main road goes into a tunnel as part of the traffic relief, which goes under Hyde Park Corner, and then you emerge, you surface at the end of Piccadilly. And so if you've got a, a road traffic tunnel, you need to be able to ventilate it in the event of an emergency. So rather than build a new vent shaft, they took over half of Wellington Arch as the ventilation shaft. And by this time, the police station had closed too. So it's always supposed to have been Britain's smallest police station, which is a nice story. I'm, one sort of wants it to be true.
0: When did that police station within the Arch actually close?
1: Oh, it seems to have been the late 50s, Charles. We are uh, we found a number of photographs of it, and I once found a marvelous photograph of P.C. Cecil Pollard and Snooks the cat make out their report in the Wellington Arch Police Station. So it was certainly um, through the fifties, and it closed in the late nineteen fifties, around nineteen sixty, something like then. And then in nineteen sixty-two, half the arch was turned into a ventilation shaft, and the police station was closed, and it was left in a rather a sad state, really, now on a traffic island, and no longer with any life in it
0: yes but it's um still a fascinating structure and i think one of the things that i newly appreciated when i visited Apsley house just over the road and wellington arch during the same episode back in episode 30 was of course you know as you've just been describing that you can walk inside this arch it's not just a lump that sits there it's actually kind of like a building really and you can go out on the top as well so that's another surprising couple of surprising facts about the wellington arch isn't it Yes, yes,
1: that's right. When Burton first designed it in the 1820s, I think he intended it to be two parkkeepers' lodges. And then in the early 20th century, and it's been rebuilt on its new site, one side of it was a parkkeeper's lodge and the other side was a police station. So it's always been occupied. It's always had life inside it. But um, the life disappeared from it after the Hyde Park Corner Scheme And those functions disappeared, and the southern side of the arch was turned into a ventilation shaft. But then in 1999, the arch was transferred to English heritage by the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. And in 2000-2001, we carried out a major renovation. And although the southern half of the arch was unavailable, the northern part was still there to be used. And so we made an entrance and put in a lift, and we made an exhibition gallery in the roof above the actual archway. And we made viewing galleries, which hadn't been there before, above the porticos on the north and south sides. And so the arch was turned into really a visitor destination with viewing galleries with very fine views. And we have temporary exhibitions up there and there's an exhibition on the history of the arch itself. And so now it's quite a popular visitor destination at this sort of focal point in London.
0: Absolutely. It's the thing that you can enjoy as an addition to visiting Apsley House. Yes, indeed. And there are various other things
1: to see on Hyde Park Corner too, of course.
0: Absolutely. Are there any quirks that you would ask people to look out for when they're walking around Wellington Arch in, inside or perhaps above on the parapet?
1: Well, if you look quite hard, you can find the bronze plaque low down, which describes the arch as being a memorial to King Edward the Seventh which I don't think many people appreciated, and which name checks Lord Mitchellam of Hellingley as being the benefactor who paid for the quadriga. And if you look quite hard at the arch to either side, you'll see there are areas of stonework to either side of the portico, which project slightly from the facade, although they're left quite plain. Now, those are the areas which were left bossed for carving by Decimus Burton, and they were meant to be carved with trophies, that is, like displays of ancient Roman weaponry, shields and spears and things. And if you look at the threes, that is, the central section of the like, uh, the giant lintel, what's formerly called the entablature of the portico, you'll see that the middle section of that also project outward slightly and that was meant to be carved with a garland pattern and that didn't happen either so if you look closely at it you can see that there are areas which were bossed for carving but never were carved with additional ornament
0: really so just like those previous arches that started off with different designs and, and in different locations i suppose it wasn't quite finished
1: yes well i think we view these things rather differently today and i think a lot of people would say that the arch looks fine without all that additional sculptural ornament because it's beautifully proportioned and really a very handsome piece of architecture. Burton was a really good architect and Adrian Jones was a really fine sculptor. So it is, despite these accidents and quirks in its history, I mean, I'd say it's still a magnificent thing. It's a very fine piece of architecture capped by a tremendous piece of sculpture, which is really its creator's masterpiece.
0: Just going back to the time when the arch was decorated with the giant disproportionate statue of Wellington on his horse, how many years passed between that being taken down and then the quadriga being added? Because it seems like a lot of time passed.
1: That would have come down in 1882 and the quadriga went up in 1912. So it's exactly 30 years.
0: Wow. So it almost seems to be 30-year increments that actually things start to the arch. It's inter- um, interesting. Interesting.
1: Something like that, but I I do rather hope that we're not going to have another round. I think it's fine as it is myself.
0: Yes, it's it's very, very attractive and a great visitor attraction. The, The other thing I'd like to ask actually about the arch is we're calling it Wellington Arch. It's had lots of connections to Wellington, both physical with this giant disproportionate statue on the top. And obviously it's got the name, but is there anywhere on this arch today where it says Wellington Arch? (laughs)
1: <laughs> only on English Heritage signage I believe Charles and we call it Wellington Arch in
0: our guidebook but otherwise no okay that's another surprising quirk I suppose about the arch as well it's not quite connected to him in a, in a strange way so anyway no
1: for that you have to look for the English Heritage signs I don't think the Duke would be very pleased but there you go
0: No. And also, it strikes me that Wellington Arch sits not so much near Hyde Park Corner, but a kind of military history corner, because there are other statues on this same traffic island, aren't there?
1: Yes, there are indeed. And this, in a way, starts with the replacement statue of the Duke of Wellington by Sir Joseph Boehm, which stands directly opposite the portico of Apsley House, which the Duke is on a a high pedestal of red granite, and he's surrounded by figures of guardsmen representing the regiment of guards. And that is a superb piece of sculpture. And then after the First World War, a great many war memorials went up around London and indeed around the United Kingdom and around the British Empire. The most important one of all, of course, is the cenotaph in Whitehall, but individual detachments of the armed forces wanted their own memorials. And two of the first ones we built were also in the vicinity of Hyde Park Corner. There, the Royal Artillery Memorial, which was by the sculptor Charles Sergeant Jagger, and the Machine Gun Corps Memorial, which is by a sculptor called Francis Derwent Wood. The Artillery Memorial is in its same position. The Machine Gun Corps Memorial was moved, rather, when the Hyde Park Corner Roundabout was made. But they gave Hyde Park Corner an additional memorial function. And in more recent years, two more war memorials have been created on the island. The Australian and the New Zealand memorials to the memory of the Australian and New Zealand servicemen and women who served in the Second World War. So Hyde Park Corner now has this quite well-developed memorial function. In addition to the Wellington Arch and the statue of the Duke, there are four major war memorials there. So there's really quite a lot to see. It might just be a traffic island, but actually it's much more than that. And since wider pedestrian crossings have been made, it's much easier to cross onto it now. And so it's, I think, rather underselling it and doing it an injustice, just to say it's on a roundabout. The Hyde Park Corner Island's been re-landscaped and is now a really fascinating visitor destination in its own right, because in addition to the arch, with these great war memorials, and there's actually house just over the road. So in a way, it's kind of a historic focal point for London. So despite its history apparently being this long succession of accidents, what we've ended up with there, I think is both fascinating and a really handsome and characterful corner of our capital with a very important commemorative function. So I wouldn't want to end the uh, the podcast on a negative note. I think Hyde Park, you might say, is a triumphant conclusion to our whole series of, of accidental outcomes.
0: Yes. There's a lot of historical texture there, and I think it's really worth appreciating the sort of different ways that uh, these schemes came about and the reasons in history for them happening. So I think that's really interesting. You've done a lot of research about Wellington Arch. What else would you like to know about it or find out about it to help tell the story for future generations?
1: Oh, I'd have liked to find out more about um, Burton's original design. We don't have many of his papers. We have his first designs for the Green Park Arch and a couple of designs for the the larger version that was built. Uh, There's a very fine architectural perspective, which Burton either painted himself or had someone else paint for the Royal Academy. And that shows his full design with all the intended sculptural ornament in a sort of romantic presented as a romantic sort of watercolor painting. And you can really see what Burton's dream for it was. He's supposed to have had a model made, but the model is long lost. I would love to be able to find Burton's model representing what he he meant his design to be, but I I fear it's probably lost.
0: So my final question then, Stephen, is what is the best way to enjoy Wellington Arch? Should it be enjoyed first before entering Apsley House or should we go to Apsley House first and then visit Wellington Arch? Which way round would you do it?
1: Oh, gosh, Charles, I, I think I'd visit the Arch first as the introduction and the, uh, and the overture. It's only because Apsley House is quite a long tour and it's absolutely full of amazing things. So I think after visiting Apsley House, you'd be rather visually exhausted. So I'd see the art first, which is quite a relatively short visit and kind of puts you in the mood for this sort of slightly sort of brass bandy, commemorative, triumphant idea of British history. And then Apsley House is a much longer visit with lots to see. I think most people would probably emerge from Apsley House a little too, too visually sated. But maybe some people would disagree, but but that's how I'd do it.
0: I suppose the other way of looking at it is if you want to enter London from the west side, coming up out of Hyde Park Corner Tube or walking down from Marble Arch Tube Station, you could sort of process triumphantly on your own or with your partner or friends or family through underneath the arch in some way, enter it, enjoy that, and then go and visit Apsley House as well. So lots of different ways of um, enjoying both sides. Stephen, this has been a really surprising and quirky and interesting history with lots of different twists and turns and governmental decisions and, and disputes and committees and time passing and kings coming to the throne and then leaving the throne. I think it's really a fascinating history. So thank you for guiding us through the fascinating history of Wellington Arch.
1: Thank you very much, Charles. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Oh.
0: You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the Duke of Wellington's home, Apsley House, over the road from Wellington Arch, you can listen to episodes 30 and 61 of the podcast. Next week, we'll explore the surprising similarities between Stonehenge and prehistoric Japan.
1: Large stone monuments that cover an area that isn't dissimilar to Stonehenge.
0: Thanks for listening. See you next time.